Good morning. Welcome to the online teaching ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church. My name is Tommy Allen and I am the senior pastor. And you have found yourself in the middle of a great series on the whole Bible based on the, the template given by the Jesus Storybook Bible. Today is our 14th sermon from that uh, sermon series. And it is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it is entitled the teeny weeny true king. Now, I've let my opinion be known about what I think about that title, but before we jump in, I thought we would confess our sins together. If you want to follow along, you can. You can find the information in the discussion section below. If you want to pause it, do it as a, a home group, however you like. And typically, uh, the reason we do this is because if we were in worship, we would do a call to worship, and I would tell you, God always initiates with sinners, and we're always responding to that initiative. And the first thing we do is sort of clear the decks, right? That we, we confess our sins, and then we sort of can worship with a, with a clear conscience. And so today's confession of sin comes from a book called The Valley of Vision. Many of you know of it. It's a Puritan book. I adapted it to make it uh, corporate instead of uh, individual. So if you would... Let us confess our sins. O Holy Father, we have no merit. Let the merit of Jesus stand for us. We are undeserving, relying solely on your mercy. We are full of weakness, wants, and sin. You are full of grace. We confess our sin, our frequent sin, our willful sin. You desire fruit, but we are thorns and thistles. Help us in all that we do to put down sin and to humble pride. Save us from that love of the world and the pride of life, from everything that is natural to fallen man, and let Christ's nature be in us day by day. Amen and amen. And this is the point at which I tell you, if you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive you. So know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen and amen. So as we jump into today's sermon, I'm going to begin this sermon with the same question with which I began last week's sermon. You see, last week um, in the evening at 4 p.m., we actually had an, a live worship service here at our church. We installed uh, Pastor Samuel as an associate pastor. We did a couple of baptisms and we did a communion. And I preached on the calling of Samuel. It's not in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And so, I ask them the purpose, what is the purpose of the book of Samuel or the books of first and second Samuel? And the, the purpose of the book and sec of first and second Samuel is just this, is that Israel needs a king, but not just any king. They need a king like David. And so God calls this prophet Samuel in chapter three of that book of first Samuel. And in chapter three, we find out, we found out that Samuel is the last judge in Israel and the first prophet. And by, by the first prophet, I mean the first sort of capital P prophet, the first one that people recognized as such. I know that Moses and Abraham are referred to prophets in different places, but this was like his job, right? To be a prophet. And so from chapters one until 12 of 1 Samuel, it's, it's all about Samuel more or less, and this guy named Saul. Saul was actually the first king of Israel. And in order to understand how important today's text is, 1 Samuel 16, about the anointing of David as the teeny weeny true king, um, we need to understand a little bit about Samuel and Saul and that what how that all went down. So 
If you remember, if you've ever read 1 Samuel, in chapter 8, Israel comes to Samuel, the elders of Israel. It's important to, to realize it was the elders of Israel come to Samuel for a specific reason, right? Sort of the dirty little secret is, is that Samuel, while he was a great prophet, he probably wasn't a very good parent because by this time in Israel's history, his sons had taken over a lot of the judging duties and they were corrupt, very similar to, to Eli's sons. And so the people come to Samuel in chapter uh, 8, starting at verse 4. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Israel comes and asks for a king. Now, a lot of people say that this was this was wrong. It wasn't wrong for them to ask for a king. It was wrong for the kind of king they asked for. Because if you remember in Deuteronomy 17, God says through Moses, he says, when you get a king, he should be like this. In other words, God was always to be Israel's king, but he always also planned to mediate his kingship through some human being. And so they came and they didn't say, we want that person. The Israel came and said, we want a king like the other nations. Now, when they say they wanted a king like the other nations, what do they mean by that? Basically, that meant that they wanted a king who was basically physically impressive, one who was handsome, and one who was rich. Or to put it backwards, one who was rich, one who was handsome, and one who was physically impressive. And so God tells Samuel, give him that kind of king, like the other nation, right? The, the, in the ancient Near East, what it took to be a king was wealth. It took basically being a looker, look, being handsome, and being powerful, being physically uh, powerful and impressive. God says, give them that king. But before you do, warn them what it's going to be like. And so the next passage, he basically tells them that if you have a king like this, he's going to take your sons and daughters, and he's going to, he's going to do this and that. He's going to take your farmland, and, and it culminates in verse 17. It says, he will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. Think about that. This is, these are the people who were released from bondage. The biggest event in their history is about being released from slavery. And God says, if you have a king like this, you will end up being his slaves. Now, how would the people respond? How would you respond? Right? If it was me, I'd be, hmm, I don't know about that. Israel says, verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So Israel basically, Samuel says, here's what it's going to be like. And they said, that's what we want. We're looking exactly for that. And so enter Saul, right? And so when you think about Saul, it starts in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Remember what I said it took to be a king in the ancient Near East, or at least a king like the other nations. You had to be rich, you had to be handsome, and you had to be big. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, 
a handsome man. How handsome was he? There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So rich, check, handsome. He is more handsome than any person in all of Israel. It's like I feel in the EPC sometimes. JK. But he's also, it says he, from his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. He was huge. He was enormous compared to the rest of Israel. Exactly what you would look for in a king. Rich, handsome, and powerful. And so long story short is Saul, Samuel goes and or ultimately ordains him or, or anoints him as the king. And his reign is a disaster. It just is a disaster. And there are three things that, that should have given us pause, that, that, should have, that should have warned Samuel maybe or warned Israel when they considered Saul to be their king. And the three things were this. is One is that it was just so blatant that like he was physically impressive and he was rich, that he had all of the things. That just seemed too easy. Second thing is that he was a poor shepherd. If you read the story by the time in chapter 9 and 10, the whole story happens about Samuel finding Saul is because Saul is such a dolt, he cannot find two donkeys. In other words, his father has lost two donkeys, and he sends Saul and his retinue out, and he says, find these two donkeys. They can't find two donkeys anywhere, and so they stop to ask for help, and Samuel's there, and God says, that's the one, make him king. And the, the third thing, which I sort of alluded to, is Saul is, is spiritually dull. Saul is, 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 is not particularly spiritually sensitive. And not only that, is he clearly bases his life on works. He, he's constantly thinking, if I do this, I'll please God if I do that. And God keeps telling him, I don't desire sacrifice, right? I desire obedience and that kind of thing. And so the contrast we're going to see with David, if, as we, we look at David a little bit, is while Saul was, the, his, he was physically impressive, David, we're going to find, is physically unimpressive. Now, he's not ugly. He's just not impressive. Now, second thing, where Saul was a, a poor shepherd, he's a horrible shepherd, David was a fabulous shepherd. He was actually a good shepherd. That was what his job was. And remember what God said, that the king should be the shepherd of God's people. And so the last thing is just as Saul was a spiritually dull and insensitive, David was spiritually alive and particularly sensitive. And so as we, you get to chapter 15 of here, that Saul has just sort of done the last straw. And in chapter 15, God tells Samuel, that's it. I have rejected him. And Samuel goes and tells Saul and it's over. And Saul, Saul grabs Samuel to try and get it, you know, to stop him. And his, his robe rips. And he says, just as, as my robe is ripped, so you have had Israel ripped from you. Now, that's where Saul, chapter 16 starts. That's where we pick up. Let me pray before we jump into that text. Father, I do pray that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and that you would teach us about your wisdom and grace even this morning. Amen and amen. So we're going to look at two things really this morning. I'm going to just walk through the text, but the two things we're going to look at is Samuel's wisdom, but also God's wisdom. In other words, 
there are two things that they're constantly sort of intention in this passage. And we're going to find out much as the New Testament says is that God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of man. In other words, sometimes when God tells Samuel to do something, you get this idea that Samuel is like going, mm, I don't know about that. But nonetheless, he does it. So if you look at verses one through six or five first, let me read those. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And he sat, consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So first off, if you consider God's wisdom here, um, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, there are two things that stand out in this, just that verse about God's wisdom or God's foolishness, depending on your perspective. The first thing he tells Samuel is, I want you to go to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite. For among his sons, am I, have I provided for myself a king? And the, the grammar there is reflexive. In other words, before Israel got the king that they wanted, and now God says, I'm going to get the king that I want, because the king that I want is the king that they need. And so he tells him that where this king is going to come from is from Bethlehem. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is Bethlehem is nowhere. Bethlehem is a podunk, drink water, hayseed town, however you want to say it. Bethlehem is so small. How small was it? Bethlehem is so small that it doesn't show up anywhere outside of the Bible. Now, some people say, oh, that means it didn't exist. Or it meant that the only people who knew about Bethlehem were Israelites who had heard of it, maybe from relatives. But it was just a tiny little place. It wasn't the place where you would go to look for a king, right? You would go to go to northern Israel. You go big if you want a king, right? No. God says, go to Bethlehem. Go to this place that no one has ever even heard of. And there basically, and, and then you see uh, Samuel's wisdom or Samuel's foolishness, if you will. Samuel asks the, a legitimate question. He says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. In other words, Samuel is, is sort of now living by common sense that you're telling me to go to it to Bethlehem, which is in southern Israel. Um, and remember, the kingdom was split into northern and southern. And you want me to go there. If Saul hears about this, he will, he will kill me. Because while Saul has been rejected from being Israel's king, he has not been removed from being Israel's king. He's still alive and he still has all the power that he had beforehand. Samuel knows that. And Samuel's like, if he hears I'm going down to anoint another king, I'm a dead man. And so what does God say? He says, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to sneak down there and, and, and get in and out before anyone can see you. And he doesn't. 
he says, take a heifer with you. In other words, go, go, go down and have a party, make an event out of this. So what's Samuel supposed to do? Well, he only has one option, right? Especially since he's the capital P prophet. In chapter four or verse four, it says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded them and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Now, why were the elders trembling when Samuel shows up with this heifer in tow? Now, we don't know for sure, but you might speculate because if you remember, it was the elders of Israel that, that demanded a king like the other nations. And the king that they got like the other nations was a disaster and everyone was starting to see that. And also in the previous chapter, Saul had failed to, to kill King Agag when God commanded him to. And so Samuel, the prophet, hacked him to pieces. And so these elders, you got to think that in their minds, maybe they're thinking, wow, okay, Saul was a disaster and maybe Samuel is coming through going town to town to deal with the elders that demanded that decision. And so they ask him, do you come peaceably? And he says, I have he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So now, if, if you can imagine the scenario that the elders are there, Jesse and his sons are there, and they're wondering what's going on. And so that takes us basically to sort of the next chunk where we look at God's choice of the king and how God decides and what is his wisdom behind all of this or, or what, what does his wisdom look like? And so the first thing you notice is that Samuel almost makes the same mistake with David's family that, he, that, that all of Israel made with Saul. Notice it says, verse six, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Why would he think that when he sees Eliab? Well, for one, we know from the next verse that Eliab is handsome and Eliab is big. We don't know if he's wealthy, but he certainly is handsome. He certainly is big and he is the firstborn in the family. And common sense tells you that a king is supposed to be handsome. A king is supposed to be big. And as the firstborn, if there was any wealth in the family, he would have gotten all of it. I mean, it would have been his. The blessing would have been his. All things would have belonged to Eliab. So Samuel sees him and he says, well, common sense says that's got to be the guy. And God immediately um, intervenes because you see, if, if Samuel had actually thought about it, he didn't really have time to think because God intervened. He would have realized that oftentimes God passed over the older in favor of the younger in the, in the Old Testament, right? So if you think about Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael was the older, and yet Isaac was the child of promise. He was the heir of Abraham's. If you think about Jacob and Esau, Esau was the oldest, and yet Jacob would be the heir, the child of blessing, the second born. And if you think of even about Moses and Aaron, Moses was second born. Aaron was the older brother, and yet Moses was the one chosen to lead. So it seems that God's way up to this point is to to choose the younger rather than the older. Samuel, for whatever reason, forgot that. But God reminds him immediately. Verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. 
for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, it's, this verse is always interesting to me is because you don't need it for the story to go forward at all. In other words, Samuel could have said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And verse seven could have just said, I've rejected him. Go to verse eight, go to verse nine, go to verse 10. So why did we have this line here? Well, the line here is not only to think, to teach Samuel a lesson, I believe, but also to teach us a lesson. And, and what is the, the lesson here? It's basically what, what God clearly says. He says, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance or man looks with the eyes, it says in Hebrew, but the Lord looks on the heart. The, the Israel and Samuel, even the Samuel, the greatest of prophets, is tempted to judge things by outward appearance, particularly people. And what God is saying is that I don't judge that way. I look at what's in the heart. Now that, that on one hand, that's great because what I think that probably means is he looks at someone like David versus Saul. And in, in David, he sees character and integrity and a spiritual sensitivity. And in Saul, he doesn't see those things. Um, on the other hand, the, it, it cuts the other way because if God really looks on the heart and he sees in all of us, he sees our sin and he sees our wickedness, which means we can try and put on all the outward appearance that we want and other people might be fooled, but God isn't fooled by us. So on one hand, he sees the good in you, but on the other hand, he also sees that which is broken in you and which is why ultimately you and I need a king and ultimately we need the king named Jesus. And so God basically tells him, I don't look at the outside, I look at the inside. And with the lesson learned, Samuel continues. And verses 8 through 10 say this. It says, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he, he said, Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, if you were one of the original readers of the story, and you got to that point, you would think, wow, that is insane. That is crazy. Why? Just because of this, the fact that seven sons were passed over would be shocking because in the Bible, seven is a perfect number. It's not magic, but but it is the magic number, if you will. It's a perfect number, and not only is seven the perfect number, but seven is the perfect number of sons. When someone in the Bible is incredibly blessed, one of the things they might say is that I am more blessed than someone who has seven sons. So, for example, when Hannah had Samuel, remember she was barren and she couldn't have a kid. And finally she has this one boy, Samuel, and he's so special. She says the barren woman has been blessed with seven sons. That's a way for her to say this is perfect. And if you remember um, Job, right? Remember Job before all the stuff happened to him, his life was perfect. It was golden. He was completely and utterly blessed. And one of the ways we know that is because Job had guess how many sons, seven sons. Remember David's grandmother, Ruth, and, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, when Ruth's husband is killed and she's grieving and mourning, Naomi tries to encourage her. And she says, do you remember what she says to Ruth? 
She says, you are more important to me. I'm paraphrasing. You are more important to me or you, you are more blessing to me than a woman with seven sons. So to have seven sons standing before him, the perfect number of sons, and for none of them to be chosen to be whatever Sam, they don't know what really what's going on there, but for none of them to be anointed by Samuel seems a little bit odd, right? Because common sense, wisdom would say that this is the perfect number. This is the blessed number. It's got to come from one of these men. God says, no. And Samuel is like, well, okay, what else you got? <laughs> right? That's what he says next. He says in verse 11, to, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, it's interesting, and I think this is where the teeny weeny tiny king comes from, or the teeny weeny true king comes from, is when he says, um, Jesse says there remains yet the youngest. That could also be translated as the smallest. If you use the ESV Bible, and actually in the in the footnote, it says that, the, the smallest. So he could say, you know, he, he's not impressive. He's, he's the smallest. And, and you almost get the idea that Jesse is like really surprised, but because notice what he says. He says, there's yet the youngest or the smallest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Right? You say behold when you really want to draw attention to something. Like, behold, he's keeping the sheep right now. Because number eight, right? Anything after eight sons doesn't even count. You don't, you don't even matter. You're just an extra mouth to feed. You almost get this idea, like uh, Jesse, like, you know, is whispering to Samuel and he's, he's speaking in pig Latin or, or uh, ob talk. And, and he's like, nabumber. Abate, right? That he's trying to like whispering is three. And Samuel says, well, we'll wait. I'll wait till he gets here. Because now Samuel is just like dialed in to the fact that God's going to choose this king, not me. And even though he's number eight, God said he would be among uh, Jesse's sons. And so Samuel is just going to, to wait for him. Now think about this. Israel's greatest king, the one through whom Messiah would come. Remember, not just any king, but from the line of David. And he had all these exploits and he wrote all these Psalms and he's probably the most famous king in the Bible, but also just people know him. Even if you don't know the Bible, people have heard about King David. He started as a complete outsider. I mean, a complete outsider. The last person you would expect to be king in Israel would be the eighth son from a podunk town who is also a shepherd, right? The, the job of, uh, of a shepherd was the job of a servant or a slave, not the job of a son. The, to, to shepherd the family's flocks is the job you gave to number eight, because numbers one through seven, they would be training and, and planning to fight in the army and doing business and commerce. And the one you just stick out there, the dirty, nasty sheep alone by himself, that is number eight. That'd be the last one, right? And yet they wait. And the irony, there's irony here that everyone is waiting. It says, and Samuel said, send for him and for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, all the elders in the town are waiting. All of the, the, the brothers are waiting. Jesse is waiting and no one has any idea what's going to happen. 
because in their mind, David is that the just this nothing. He's nobody. Remember when David and Goliath happens? We'll look at that next week. Um, David comes to check on his his brother. Like, why don't you get back there and take care of those few little sheep? Right? He's inconsequential in everyone's mind because he is such an outsider. Now, because David is this outsider, this the first king of Israel or the first real uh, successful king of Israel, um, it shouldn't surprise us that his greater son, that his great descendant, Jesus, was also uh, uh, the ultimate outsider. Now, what's interesting is the difference between David and Jesus is David was just flat out an outsider who was brought in. Jesus was the ultimate insider. Jesus started as the ultimate insider. Think about it. Can you get any more inside than to be part of the Trinity? Like, oh, how close are you with your father? We're one, just like that. You can't get any closer. You can't get any more inside. You can't get any more intimate than to be part of the Trinity. And that's what Jesus was. And yet he became an outsider so that he could bring us in. In other words, Jesus, the ultimate insider, went all the way to the outside because guess where you and I live? All the way on the outside. Jesus left his throne above, if you will. He he became an outsider so that he could bring outsiders in. And he, if, if you're not a Christian, hear me clearly. Jesus didn't come so he could bring you in so that you could be just a good church member someday or that you could be part of the religious establishment that you really don't understand. I remember when I became a Christian as as a young adult and I had no idea how church worked. You know what? I became a pastor at some point when I was about 26 years old. I still didn't know how things worked because I really hadn't gone to church that much. And so Jesus isn't calling you to do that. Jesus became an outsider so that you could become an insider like he is an insider so that you could have an intimate relationship with God, your Father. And the question is, will you embrace that? Will you, will you own that? Will you, will you buy that, if you will? That Jesus, when he became an outsider, he not only became an outsider to the Trinity, but he became an outsider to, to everyone, uh, up to the point in which he, he was actually crucified by the, the government. I mean, think about this. When Jesus was born, the Magi showed up, these, these great sort of kingmakers. And when they showed up, they went straight to Jerusalem because that's where you ought to look for a king, right? The capital. And people there were like, no, I haven't heard of anything. Don't know anything. And I can just imagine them bumping into some, you know, used camel salesman and them saying, oh, yeah, yeah, he's out at Bethlehem. He's in this little place. But I mean, actually, an angel told them. But nonetheless, um, that what happened was unexpected to them. And then even the whole life of Jesus, when people ask him, where are you from? And he would say, Nazareth. And they, people would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was the other side of the tracks, Nazareth of the, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And so Jesus was there and they said, well, at least are you a rabbi or something? No, nah, I was a carpenter. That's my training. And everything about him was the opposite of what you would expect. He was outside of the religious establishment. The Pharisees and Sadducees ultimately had him crucified until finally he was outside of the religious establishment, outside of the government establishment, until he was just stuck on this hill in a dump, dying, so that you and I could go all the way inside and be right at the foot of the throne of grace. How could you not embrace that? How could you not want that? If you want it, 
it is yours. And if you notice in this text here, that what happens is almost, it's almost an after effect here in 12 and 13, it says, and he sent and brought him in. So David comes and it says, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. So David comes running in. He's, I don't know how old he is, 15 or 16 years old. It says he's ruddy, which means red, or he was sunburned. And it says that he was handsome. So David's not an ugly guy. In other words, you don't got it. Just because someone's ugly doesn't mean their inside's good, but David was decent looking, apparently. And it says in verse 13, Samuel took a horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, the last thing I'll point out to you before I conclude is this, is that when Saul was anointed to be king, it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, period. And then it left him. And sometimes it would come and sometimes it would go and then it left and an evil spirit came and not so with david with david it says the spirit of the lord rushed upon david from that day forward that god when he anointed david committed himself to david and committed himself to his own mission of saving the world through one of david's descendants and so let me close by reading. I love the, the way the Jesus Storybook Bible sort of ties up this story and says this. Jesse's youngest son came running up and God spoke quietly to Samuel. This is the one. His name was David. He has a heart like mine, God said. It is full of love. He will help me with my secret rescue plan. And one of his children's children, children will be the king. And that king will rule the world forever. Samuel anointed David's head with oil, which was a special way to show that you are God's chosen king. You will be the new king one day, Samuel told him. And sure enough, when he grew up, David became king. God chose David to be king because God was getting his people ready for an even greater king who is coming. Once again, God would say, go to Bethlehem. You'll find the new king there. And there one starry night in Bethlehem in the town of David, three wise men would find him. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for a king um, who understands what it is like to be on the outside and who understands all of the things that we have gone through, who understands the temptations that we have gone through, understands the suffering that we endure. And yet he has drawn us in and by his spirit who is with us forever, uh, he draws us to the throne of grace. I pray that we would take advantage of that. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen. And amen. Whew. At this point, if we were having a service, we would sing the doxology together. And I even would say we're having an offering, but we didn't last week. We didn't. We had a box in the back of the church or, or, or a dish um, because of all the pandemic stuff. All that to say, if you're interested in giving to the Ministry of New Hope, you can find the information below. And many, many, many of you have been so faithful in your giving for that. That's enabled us to continue doing what we're doing. And so I thought I would finish with this with a question from the larger catechism. And the question from the larger catechism is this, it's question 39. And the question says this, why did the mediator have to be human? In other words, why did the second person of the Trinity have to become a man in order to save us? And the answer is this, the mediator had to be a human so that he might improve human nature, obey the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our own nature, 
and know firsthand what infirmities feel like so that we might be adopted as sons and have comfort and access with boldness to the throne of grace. Amen and amen. Let me send you from this place with God's benediction, saying the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior. The Lord your God will quiet you with his love, and the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. When you turn the TV off or your computer, have a great week this week. Amen and amen.